Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here this Easter. There's some folks standing in the back. If you have empty seats, maybe scoot in uh, so they can sit down and join us as well. It's good to be together uh, with you all. I want to welcome everybody watching online and at our live sites and at the Montrose Building as well. Thanks for joining us. It was fun watching you guys walk in. You're all dressed up, kind of cute. You, got, you guys look as good this weekend as I always do. And so it's a... It feels good, doesn't it? It's just, I've learned to live with it, but I hope you enjoy it for the afternoon. But it's, uh, <clears throat> it's fun. It's good to see you. I am wearing Gabrielle Brothers this weekend. And so I uh, just want to represent a little bit. It's good to, it's good to be together. That, what we're going to do this weekend is this, a couple things. So uh, we're going to take uh, a strong look at Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. We're going to take a strong look at his resurrection from the dead, the empty grave. And then as we do that, we're going we're gonna to set down a foundation for a conversation we're going to have for the next few weeks. So we're going to lay out, uh, begin a series this weekend called Love Liable. And uh, in that series, we're going to take a really strong look at what it means to live like Christ and what it means to love like Christ. So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're kind of checking this whole thing out, uh, you're going to get a, a clear definition of who Christ is and what he's like. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, you're going to get probably a, a, a definition and an illustration of his love for us that he wants us to have for each other that may well be life-altering for you. So I think this, this next few weeks is going to be powerful and good as, uh, as we dig at those things. Uh, <clears throat> where this idea comes from is this directive that Jesus gives is actually in John chapter 15. These are his words. He says this. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And so Jesus looks at his followers for sure. And then really every human being, because Jesus wants all to follow him, right? He wishes that none would perish, but all would receive salvation through him. And he would look and say, I want you guys to love each other, right? I don't know if you've watch the news lately, but we're not real awesome at this right now in the world. And so he would say, I want you to love each other, but not the way that you define it. I don't, whatever your definition is, if it's be nice, be polite, get along, you know, you can have your own definition. We all probably have our own, whether uh, subconsciously or consciously, but he would say, I want you to love each other, but I, I want to define what love is. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And I want you to see how I have loved you, receive how I have loved you, and then pour that out of your own life. He goes on in the next verse. He says this. He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. He would start leaning in and say, that, that's how I have loved you, is I have given my life for you. And when you think about love and the definition of love and what it is and how it works, it's going to look like that. It's going to look like laying down your life for one's friend, giving your life to someone. In fact, <clears throat> another part of the Bible, Jesus says this. He says, once you become my follower, I'm no longer your, your teacher and your master. I'm your friend. We become friends. You become a brother or a sister to me because you're adopted by my heavenly father. So he says, that's the love I'm talking about, that you would lay down your life for someone that you would love as I have loved you. Now, 
in that definition, it's real important that we, we look at that and we, we take note of, of a truth about Easter. And here it is. The truth about Easter is this, that Jesus laid down his life. It's really important. Uh, Jesus did not just get like caught in the wheels of history. He is not a, a political martyr or even a religious one because he was not murdered. His life <clears throat> was not taken from him. He willingly laid it down. His words here in John chapter 10, Jesus' words, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Uh, this command I received from my father. So Jesus would look and say, I, I want you guys to understand uh, you didn't get me, you didn't catch me, my teaching didn't catch up with me. I decided to do this. I predetermined, I, in, in a willful act with willful intention, I decided that I was going to lay my life down, right? And, and, I, and I'm doing all of that as part of a plan, and I'm doing that by my own authority. By the way, I will take it up by my own authority too. But I'm doing it on purpose. Jesus offering his life is a big deal. Because him offering his life is the supreme sacrifice and the supreme illustration of love. So he would say, in John 13, he would say, I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. I'm going to love you to the end. I'm going to see this through. And, and when you think about me loving you, and you think about that in color with skin on, what does me loving you look like? It looks like me laying my life down. It looks like my willingness, me seeing it through my passion or my suffering it looks like the cross. It looks like the grave. That is the full extent of my love. It's as much, it, the greatest illustration I can think of or come up with to show you that I love you. So when we read the, the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, he would want us to see that. Matthew 27 is the one that I'm reading from here, verse 28. They stripped him and put a, a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff, and they struck him, struck him in the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. When they reached Golgotha, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. 
They, they, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he, let him rescue him if he, if he wants him. He said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified next to him heaped insults upon him. Those are just some of the details. Jesus would say, when you see that, shaking their head, you're the son of God, mocking me, gambling over my clothes, striking me, the crown of thorns. And then we didn't even touch on the beating and the flesh being ripped from my back, the nails through my arms and through my feet, me bleeding out. When you see all of that, I want you to understand the depth of my love, and I want you to understand that I decided to do that on purpose. I knew it was going to happen. I understood the details of it. I've always known, and with a, with a predetermined yes, I am going to love you like that. And I've decided, and I, I, I literally cannot do more to illustrate my love for you than that, right? I, I want to show you, this, this is such a, uh, an important thing. that Jesus gave his life, he laid it down and decided to do it. I want to show you a little bit kind of his tenacity in this. And, and there's, a, there's a glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 27. So, all those things happen, and after they happen, getting near to the end of his life as he's on the cross, Jesus says this in verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Bible says he cried out again, and he gave up his spirit. So right before he died, he said this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This phrase is actually an illustration of the intentionality and the determination and the resolve of Jesus to love us. So let me explain this a little bit. I got to do a little history lesson for you, okay? So this is the way it works. When you, when you read the Bible, there's four different accounts of the crucifixion in the Bible in the books that we call the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were followers of Jesus Christ and they each recorded the events of the crucifixion from their perspective as they were communicating them to the people around them. So in each one of those books, there's different details about the crucifixion that the other writer may not have put in. And they would do that because as they were writing these accounts, they were communicating to a group of people and they wanted certain groups of people to understand the depth of Jesus' love and intentionality for them. So Matthew, for instance, was written to a Jewish audience, an ancient Jewish audience. That means that Matthew, who was also an ancient Jewish person, included in his gospel certain details that when an ancient Jewish ear would hear that detail, it would make sense to them on a deeper, deeper way. And one of the details that was meant for that Jewish audience that Matthew put in his gospel was Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now to understand or to get your head around why a Jewish audience would pick up on that, 
we need to talk about the scriptures for a minute. So if you look at your Bible, right, and you get your Bible, the Bible is given to us by God. We would say it's inspired, it's authoritative, it's complete, it's the word of God. But when you look at your Bible and you look at the chapters and the verses in the Bible, that, that like I just said, like Matthew 27, verse 46, the chapters and the verses are not inspired by God. Those are put in there by scholars, and we put those in there so that we could talk back and forth about the Bible. I could say, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 27 and look at verse 46. So in the ancient world, the, the verses and the chapters weren't in the Bible. If you were an ancient Jewish person, you would have been raised learning the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And one of the books you would have memorized growing up was the book of Psalms. And you would have sang the Psalms. You would have memorized the Psalms. When you went to school, you would have been taught the Psalms. You would sing the Psalms around your home. When you went to the synagogue, you would be taught the, the book of Psalms. But there were no chapters and verses, so you would never say, turn to Psalms chapter 5, verse 13. You wouldn't say that. The way that you would refer to or organize or communicate with each other about which psalm you were going to sing is you would say the first verse of that psalm and it would organize it. I heard Pastor Tony explain this in a great way. He, he said, think of it as, as a nursery rhyme. We would talk to each other this way about nursery rhymes. So if I was going to have you orient on a nursery rhyme, I wouldn't say, turn to chapter 4, nursery rhyme, you know, 13. What I would say to you is this. Say this with me. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I would say the first rhyme of the nursery rhyme, and you would know the nursery rhyme, and then you would probably know the, the rest of it. If I said, Mary had a little lamb, you would, you would know that phrase, and then you would know the rest of the nursery rhyme. We actually talk to each other like this all the time. So if you're a Christ follower, you'll know this. If I say, uh, O-H, <laughs> you would say what? See, you know that. If you're a Michigan fan, if I said go, right, now you know that they worship the devil. So see how it works? You get the, you get the whole context of what's going on. So, so we do this. Mary had a little lamb, twinkle, twinkle, little star is how you would orient it. It's how the ancient Jewish people oriented it. When Jesus was on the cross and he was getting ready to die, and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not simply crying out, Father, why won't you rescue me from this? He was not lamenting his separation from his Father God, where, where for the first time Jesus, because he took sin on himself, was separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's not what he was accomplishing when he said this phrase. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was orienting a Jewish audience to the full truth and impact of what was happening on the cross. He was actually quoting the first line of Psalms 22, which starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was yelling, read Psalms 22. My God, my God, twinkle, twinkle, little star, why have you forsaken me? And when he said that, the Jewish audience there 
and the Jewish audience for all time, and now us through the scripture, orient ourselves to the magnitude of what's happening on the cross. Jesus was saying, know the whole thing. What does Psalms 22 go on to say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from, me, from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads at me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. The Bible makes a point to say that none of Jesus' bones were broken, but most medical scholars, when they look at the crucifixion, would say that when Jesus' feet were nailed and his wrists were nailed and he was hanging, when they lifted the cross, it would have fallen into a, a, a hole cut in stone and it would have jarred. And most believe that his shoulders would have dislocated. When Jesus died, he actually suffocated. His lungs filled with fluid, fluid cooled around his heart. That's why when the Roman soldier pierced him, blood and water flowed, and he was unable to lift his diaphragm to breathe. He couldn't pull up on his arms, and if he wanted to push up, he had to push up on the nails in his feet. My bones are out of joint, Psalms 22 says. Psalms 22 goes on. My mouth is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in a dust of death. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. As the ancient Jewish audience who called for Jesus' crucifixion and for all the Jewish people that he wanted to know that he was their Messiah, he cries out, Psalms 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look. Prophecy is happening in front of you. I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb of God that came to take away your sins. I am the song you grew up singing. And not just vaguely. I am that in detail. Details that are in your control, not in my control. I couldn't even manipulate them. See your Messiah. Understand the magnitude of what's happening for you. I want, I'm showing you the full extent of my love. Do you see it? Now what's fascinating is Psalms 22 doesn't end here. This is in the middle of it. And so when you go on, you see the whole of what Jesus wanted them to dial into. The Psalms goes on, for he, that's God, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cries for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about him. This weekend, approximately 1.5 to 1.8 billion Christians alive on the planet today are gathered fulfilling the prophecy of Psalms 22. Remembering, declaring, 
Future generations are being told about the Lord. Here it is, right? They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And we, we, we literally at this moment are fulfilling Psalms 22. We are the people yet unborn gathered together on Easter saying he has done it. He laid down his life. He took it up again. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He is the Messiah. He is our Lord. Now, Psalms 22, catch this, incredible. Psalms 22 was written about a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus' crucifixion, fulfilling the plan. Did he do it on purpose? He's not a victim. He's a victor. I lay my own life down. I decided a minimum of a thousand years before you crucified me, I decided I was going to do this. In fact, if you want to press deeper in the scripture, the scripture would say this. The Bible says that God knows you. By the way, did you know that? Did you know that God knows you personally? He knows your heart and your life and loves you individually. The Bible says that God knows you. The Bible says that before the foundations of the world were laid, God knew you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knew you. Later on in the New Testament, the Bible says, not only that, you were created, you were predestined, the Bible says, to do good deeds which only you can fulfill. Your life was planned. Your existence was planned. Your, your impact on the world was planned. And then the Bible says this in Romans. But God demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew you were going to be born. He knew why you were going to be born. He knew when you were going to be born. And he knew you were going to sin. He knew you were going to rebel. He knew you were going to forsake him. He knew you were going to wander off and go astray. He knew that you were going to be passive in your faith. He knew all of that. And knowing all of that, even in eternity past, he decided to give his life for you. And Jesus would say, when you think about what it means to love, it means that, all of it. The will and the determination and the resolve for the joy set before him, the Bible says, he endured the cross. He knew it was gonna happen. He knew they were gonna pierce his hands and mock him and beat him and gamble for his clothes before they knew they were going to do that. And he decided that the answer of whether he was going to love you or not was yes. And he looks and he says, now I want you to love each other like that. 
I want you to have a predetermined yes, regardless of who, regardless of how, regardless of what they did, the answer is yes. I want to love you. I'm going to love other Christians. I'm going to love my spouse, my family, my friends. I'm going to love my worst enemy. The answer is yes. God will go on and he'll say this. My people, my disciples, he calls us, people who've decided to be Christ followers. In fact, you know how much this is to be ingrained into your thinking in your life? That you know people are Christians because they love each other. Not their politics, not their behavior, not their soapboxes, not, not their subculture, because they love each other. They will be so radical in their love, so selfless in their love, so determined to love, that you will know that they love the way that I love you. It will be the hallmark of who they are. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna take a deep, deep dive on this. And I think it's going to hit us in a couple ways. One, one is this, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the Bible would say that, that what God wants for you is to know and to receive this love, that you are radically, deeply, brutally loved by God. God is not out to get you. He would have got you. You've given him plenty of reasons. He's out to love you. He knows you're going to sin. He knows you're tempted to reject him. He knows that you want to not even really deal with it. You're not even sure he exists. He knew all of that, and knowing that that's you decided to die for you. So he would look at you and say, I want you to receive this. I want you to be transformed by this. I want you to receive it in your salvation, the forgiveness of your sin, and I want you to receive it through my transforming power in your own life. I want you to radically be loved by me. So over the next few weeks, as we look at this, I think what's going to happen for you is we're going to cut through a bunch of noise. Because I'm making the number up, but I bet you 90% of the stuff for sure on the internet and in our culture that has the term Christian attached to it has nothing to do with being a Christian. And when you get down to the heart and the mind of Christ, and the center point of his life, which is to love you. You, at a minimum, know who he is and maybe even know what you're signing up for if you decide to follow him. I think the other seat that we sit in is for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. When we start getting a hold of the depth of God's love for us, it will, it will transform our life. I, I, I tell you guys, when you look at this, it, it's fascinating. I, when you look at the depth of what Jesus did and the magnitude of it and the will of it and the predetermined yes and the resolution of it, and you say, I'm going to love like that, I actually can't figure out how you do not live a radical life. I, I wouldn't know another response to it. How, how do you 
withhold mercy from someone when Christ has been so merciful to you? How do you withhold forgiveness or keep a grudge or what the Bible calls a record of wrong when Christ is continually forgiving you and casting your sins as far as these is from the West? How do we look around the world and be callous to the needs of the world when Christ was not remotely callous to us and we deserve whatever we have coming? See, it, it's... it's almost impossible to receive the love of Jesus and not have that pour out of our lives into other people. How can you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not love your neighbor as yourself? So what happens is you get your head around this, it will ra it'll mess with you. It'll radically affect you. And the answers aren't easy, and they're not simple, and they're not light. They, they look like the cross. So this is not five steps of how to get along with difficult people. Somebody wrote that book. This is how do I love as I have been loved, and what would that look like? And Jesus would say, that's what I want. That's what I'm driving at. That, that's the point, that you love like that. What's it look like? It looks like this. It looks like Easter. It looks like the passion. It looks like the suffering. It looks like the cross, and it looks like the resurrection. My, uh, my family takes a lot of pride in our last name. Being a Bogue's a big deal. And so uh, we, we talk about it all the time. We joke about it, you know, and we're like, yeah, it's, we want to, we take pride in being a Bogue. And the reason we take pride in being a Bogue is because of my parents. So before my parents, being a Bogue would have been more of a joke. If you said the Bogues, you were probably talking about someone poor, someone who maybe couldn't keep a job, someone who was kind of mean and harsh. That, that was the Bogues. My, my father who the last name comes through, obviously, would have grown up in that environment, right? Where it was kind of a difficult, dysfunctional environment. Mary, my mom, she grew up in a dysfunctional environment too because birds of a feather dysfunction together, and so they, they found each other. My mom grew up in a home. Her home was violent, so her dad, my grandpa, was a, a mean drunk, and he would come home, and he was that guy that would come home and like beat his wife and his kids, like that guy. Both of his sons died of alcoholism. So my mom grew up in that home, and my mom would say about her father-in-law, my father's father, that he was the cruelest man that she'd ever met. So just, just dysfunction junction, right? And so they, they come together, they get married, and in their early 30s, they find Christ. And they receive Christ, and they receive this deep love, this intentional love, this predetermined yes love, this, this Easter love, this brutal, violent, bloody, sacrificial love. And they download that for themselves. They receive their salvation and they say, in essence, I'm gonna allow that love to transform me. So my folks, very simple, kind of normal people, and their thought was this, if it's what the Bible says a Christian is, then that's who a bogus is going to become. That's just how we're going to live. So my dad would have, uh, things like, he would have heard along the way that 
If you're a Christian, you don't lie. You live a life of integrity. And so to my knowledge, my dad was 74 when he died. My mom was 69 when she died. To my knowledge, I don't know a lie my dad ever told. I couldn't name one for you. Uh, my dad and mom heard that um, if you're a Christian, you don't use foul language. Ephesians 4 talks about that. And so in my home growing up, uh, my whole life, 74, 69 when she died, I, I never once ever heard a curse word in my home my whole life. Never once, right? Because oh, that's what a Christian is. They, they read something that the Bible says a Christian is somebody who is generous. And so my parents would, were generous. They would open their home. Um, my cousin was in a car accident as an adult. My parents moved him into our house, taught him to eat, talk, walk, and go to the bathroom again. They, they rehabbed him in our home. Uh, another family connected to us, they, they had hard times. My dad moved the whole family into our house. They lived with us. And my dad, uh, my dad was a factory foreman, and so for him to get more money was overtime, right? So he would work overtime, and he was supporting two families at once because he's like, well, we have a house, and they need one, so move into our house, right? My cousin, this would be my mom's nephew, who her brother was an alcoholic. They raised my cousin. He just grew up with us, right? And that's, that's the way they thought because a Christian is somebody who's generous, and that's what they do, and that's, so that's what Bogues are going to do. They read in the Bible that you should forgive as you have been forgiven. So when my brother, who was eight years old, was killed by a drunk driver, my parents forgave the man that killed their son. They never sued him, never asked for bigger charges. Their, their thought would have been this, what's the point of ruining two families' lives? We've been forgiven, we're gonna forgive. So that's my mom and dad. So they changed the meaning of our name. So to be a bogue now means something. We would take pride in it. I would look at my own children and I would say, you, you need to live up to your name. This is why we don't do these things. It's not because you're a pastor's kid. It's not your fault what your daddy's called to do. It's because you're a bogue, <laughs> right? And if your grandfather found out... <laughs> Right? And we would honor those things because our name was earned and paid for and given to us by their grandparents. You have been given a name. You are little Christ. You are Christ-like. You are Christians. And if you're going to carry that name... Jesus would say, if you're my people called by my name, there's a definition to that name. And it's not the way you vote. And it's not the subculture. And it's not being an American. At the core of the name is what happened at Easter. The name means a predetermined yes to love. The name is rooted in eternity. The, the name is the suffering. The name is the sacrifice. The name is the resurrection. And if you're going to carry the name, 
If you're going to be one that declares he has done it, you, the generation yet unborn who now carry the name, I want you to honor the name. You're liable for the name. If you're going to use it, if it's going to be on your car, if it's going to be on your jersey, if it's going to be anywhere around you where people would identify me through the name that you carry, the name is to be lifted high because Christ is the name above all names. And he was exalted, why? Because he humbled himself and he became obedient to what? To death on the cross. He was exalted for his love. And so I'm liable, I'm responsible to do what? To love like that. Radical. Difficult, bloody, sacrificial, violent, predetermined, resolved, willful, intentional love. The Easter, the Easter question for us would be this. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, the, the, the response to Easter would be to receive that love. And maybe you've been thinking about it and been talking about it and been around it and, and God has you right there. Maybe today is the day that you need to decide to receive the love. And I encourage you to do that. Ask Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Believe that he is God. Allow, tell, commit. God, allow you to define and direct me. I just need to know what it is. And receive your salvation and follow Christ. Don't worry about what to say. God doesn't care what you say. He cares what you mean. Don't worry about the words. Worry about your heart. But God would say, I want to give you this. I died to give you this. And it's a gift. And I want you to receive it. For those of us who are Christ followers, the Easter question would be along these lines. Has that radical love, is it transforming my life? Am I cutting people off? Are you dead to me? Have I given up on you? I can't stand to be around you. I dread you. Whoa. See, is it transforming my life? Now, an honest, an honest statement would be this, but I don't know how to love that way. I was talking to a friend between services last night and he came up to me and said, Jeff, he said, I'm, I'm embarrassed by my last name. What am I supposed to do about it? And I said, you need to be my dad, man. You, you need to be, you got to let God help you be the chain breaker, break the cycles. And he said to me, very honest thing. He said, I don't know how to do that. And I said, you're going to love this series. And that's what the word of God is for. And that's what the Holy Spirit is for. And that's what the people of God are for. It's called discipleship. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to do that. I don't know how to do that in these circumstances. Right. Because it's not five steps to get along with difficult people. It's the Christian life is learning and living and working out how do we love the way that Christ loved. So the question for those of us who are Christ followers is not salvation. 
The question for those of us who are Christ followers is this. Do I have a predetermined yes in place? Is the answer yes? Now, what do you want me to do? God, the answer is yes. I will love as I've been loved. Now, how, how does it work in this relationship? But the question of the cross is, is a question of salvation, and then it's a question of transformation. And the risen Savior, see, the risen Savior is calling us to that. Easter, Easter is a portrait of the price and the power of love. And as we look at that, that's why we look at it, remind ourselves of it, that is all there as an expression of Christ's love so that we're drawn to his heart, right? He wants us to know. He wants us to know, right? All right. I'm going to ask the band to come in, and they're going to take us into a time of prayer and worship and then celebration, and so dial into that huge but as they settle in, maybe we could bow our heads and close our eyes and maybe you could pray. Pray to God for salvation if you've never received it and talk to God about your predetermined yes or maybe a relationship or two that you're withholding and allow the power of Easter to penetrate even your heart. Jesus, help us in these moments to, to lock on to the fullness of what you've done all on purpose. And God, when you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You wanted us to know that too. And so God, as we download the magnitude of your sacrifice and the magnitude of your resurrection, we the people yet unborn, we declare you have done it. God, let us declare that in our lives personally as well as kind of corporately during this season. Would you press into us? Would you show us the, the parts of our heart that are not yet surrendered to you? And would you allow us to embrace the great calling and illustration and example that you gave us at Easter? Be with us in these moments, Jesus, in your name.